also pray for your spirit to come and, and teach us this morning through your word. Um, God, just what it, what it has for us today. Uh, I think mostly how it's, it's aimed right for application for us today. Um, God, so I, I pray that you might help us in these things, that we would indeed abhor evil. God, of every kind, shape, fashion, and form in our lives, and that we would hold fast, God, to those things that are good. Uh, those things in our lives that need to be held on to, God, help us with that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Uh, it's page 948 of your pew Bibles, if you need that. Uh, we're going to finish this, this morning what we began last Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to finish the verse of uh, chapter 12 and verse 9. Uh, we started last week, we looked at the first third of the verse, and this week we're going to look at the second thirds of the verse. The verse reads like this, okay? Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let's all say it together, it's right there on the screen, we say it. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Okay, I want to read it just a few more times. The way to memorize, if you're ever interested in memorizing the Bible, just say it out loud over and over and over again. Let, let's say it three more times, and then we're going to test you, all right? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Good job. Well, the verse is simple. You can see right there, it's three lines, three commands, a command to love, a command to avoid evil, and a command to do good. In fact, in many ways, these three commands here could summarize all of the application of all of the Bible. What does God call us to do but to to love others and to avoid evil and to do good? I mean, that's exactly what Paul calls us to do right here, right? Loving, hating evil, and doing good. If you would focus your attention upon applying just these three simple commands... Right? Of all the Bible, the Bible's filled with all these different commands. But if you just focus your attention upon these three, you would do very well in your Christian life. John Piper said this, If you will think and pray and obey your way down into this verse, you and your children will be liberated from many of the follies of this age and every age. In, in other words, what he's saying is that, that this verse here kind of holds a key uh, to like, it would maybe summarize, maybe not hold a key, but summarizes so well just the application of all the Bible that it would protect you from so many wrong ways if you just follow after this verse. And it always, I mean, it always has for 2,000 years, and it always will. Now, the, these three commands are, are so general and, and universal that even non Christians understand this. In fact, if you would ask someone on the street, um, just, you know what, what, what what's important? What, how ought you to live? You might get the same answer. Say, well, I, I should be a loving person, and I, I shouldn't do bad, and I should do good. I mean, that's just as simple and as vanilla as it gets. But what makes these commands here distinctly Christian 
is the context. They all come by way of response, and that changes everything. Because if you ask someone on the street just how they should live, like this is what they, they think perhaps to, to merit something, or I need to, to love others, I need to, to, to stay away from the bad and do the good so that when I stand before God, He'll, he'll weigh my good and bad. I mean, I've talked to so many people. They say, I'm going to weigh my good and bad. What's good? So that's where they, they get this idea about having to be good. And it's all by way of anticipation, like maybe to, to earn something right before God, or, or even just even practically in life. If you follow these things in life, life will go well for you. If you love others and you avoid evil things and you do good things in, in general, you'll be commended by society. People will entrust you with things. You will... You'll, you'll do well. Um, you'll stay away from problems. I mean, it's, it's good. But the fact that these verses come by way of response changes everything. True Christians seek to apply these not to earn anything, but in response to the mercy of God. That's where Paul began. I mean, that's Romans 12.1. That's where Paul began. And, and I, I just say this, that it is so important as we crawl through Romans 12. Verse at a time. I think next week we're going to look at verse 10. Loving one another with brotherly affection and outdoing one another and showing honor because I think those two two link together. But as we just crawl through this, I'm going to relentlessly remind you that, that the context of this message comes in response to the mercies of God, Romans 12, verse 1. But if you forget the context, then my message today is mere moralism. And it's nothing different than the world would seek to try to do. In fact, there are many devoutly religious people who follow after this maxim. Um, In fact, some of them try really hard after this maxim. I'm thinking of this guy who tried really hard to obey the commandments and to walk in a a right way. I remember reading his autobiography years ago. And and particularly, I I remember the the time in which, which he sought diligently to live a moral life. He was no Christian, but he had healthy respect for Christianity. He didn't believe the Bible, though he knew what it said because he was such a learned man. And there was a season in his life where he began to attend church because he had a little bit extra leisure in time in his life. And, and this is what he wrote in his autobiography. I, I commend you to, to read it. I remember reading it to my children, Chris and SR, when they were probably 10. I, I asked SR about this, the autobiography this week. And I said, do you remember when I read the autobiography to you? And he said, no. Well, I remember. And I remember this time when he, he, he had some leisure time. And so he said, though I seldom attended any public worship, Benjamin Franklin says... I still had an opinion of its propriety and of its utility when rightly conducted. And I regularly paid my annual subscription for the support of the only Presbyterian minister or meeting that we had in Philadelphia. So he didn't go to church, but he, he paid to, whatever, support the local congregation. He was just a, he was a good man. He's a faithful man. Um, not a godly man, but a good man. He says, uh, this pastor used to visit me sometimes as a friend. Maybe because he knew that Benjamin Franklin was helping him with some monies and had some publishing capabilities. I don't know. But, and, and he would come and admonish me to attend to his administrations, that is, church services. And, and I was now and then prevailed upon to do so. And once for five Sundays successfully, successively I did. He had been, had he been, in my opinion, a good preacher, perhaps I might have continued. <laughs> I know what that's about. <laughs> We've had people come to church, and then I hear kind of when they go, oh, they didn't like this, and they didn't like that, whatever. But, but notwithstanding, but, but I just say, that wasn't the fault of Benjamin Franklin, because he heard one of the greatest preachers of all time, whose name was George Whitfield. 
He loved to hear him preach, not because he believed it, but because George Whitfield was such a great preacher. Um, but he was itinerant, so Ben Franklin didn't see him very much. But anyway, he says, uh, Had he been, in my opinion, a good preacher, perhaps I might have continued, notwithstanding the occasion I had for the Sunday's leisure in my course of study. But his discourses, and, and hear this, hear this well, from Ben Franklin, uh, a humanist, his were chiefly either polemic arguments or explications of the peculiar doctrines of our sect, and were all to me very dry, uninteresting, and unedifying, since not a single moral principle was inculcated or enforced, and their aim seeming to make us better Presbyterians than good citizens. And so he just kind of discerned, like it was no practical help to him. That's why the preaching of the word, right, I ought to take God's truth and apply it deeply into our hearts. But anyway, he wanted to describe how, how this minister was preaching through Philippians 4, verse 8, which says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And as he listened through these sermons that this pastor gave, Franklin wrote this. He says, I imagined in a sermon on such a text, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, let your mind dwell on these things. We could not miss of having some morality, but he confined himself to five points only as meant by the apostle. You need to keep the Sabbath holy. You need to be diligent in your reading of scriptures. You need to attend the public worship. You need to partake of the sacrament. And you need to pay a due respect to God's ministers. He says, these might be all good things, but as they were not the kind of good things I expected from that text, I despaired of ever meeting with them from any other, was disgusted, and attended his preaching no more. It's very interesting. He wasn't faithful to the text. And Benjamin Franklin saw that and said, this is no, no use. It's very interesting. However, this church-going experience really compelled him to live a moral life. He said, about that time, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. Here's Benjamin Franklin wanting to arrive at moral perfection. He says, I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew, I thought I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. So you catch what he's doing? He wants to be perfectly moral. Right? He's, you know, he's, he's Christless, okay? So he, he's not got the spirit, but he's on his own flesh seeking to be absolutely moral. His categories were right and wrong, good and evil, just like our text. Love one another genuinely, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. And with all his might, he... He, he tried to do good and avoid the evil. And so intent was he upon this project that, that he made a little lo- notebook and he listed down some virtues. And throughout the day, Benjamin Franklin, as he observed himself transgressing any of those virtues, he would write a little check. Nope, missed that one, missed that one, missed that one. And he did this actually for quite some time. He, he talks in his autobiography about how he then would, would rather than starting a new, a new one, right, we'd just print out another sheet on our laser printer, right? But he would kind of erase everything. And then he figured he's got to draw his lines with the ink so that when he erases, it's not so bad. And over and over, he did this. And I don't know how long the biography doesn't say, but he kept this little book with him for a long time and was diligent about trying to do this for some time. At the beginning of every day, he'd ask himself this question, what good shall I do this day? And at the end, he would ask himself this question, what good have I done today? So really trying hard every day, right? Just, just noting when he failed in his morality and marking off the times when his actions were evil and every day seeking to do good. 
And really, exactly like Romans 10.9 would have him to do, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. And here's what he discovered. He said, but I soon found that I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took advantage of inattention and inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. He said, I was surprised to find so much fuller, to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined, but I had the satisfaction of seeing them diminish. Did you catch what he says? He says, I did not know that I had so many faults. And he was exposed that he was a sinner. But he did say, well, I did make some moral improvement, which he did on the earthly realm, but he never claimed moral perfection. And what Benjamin Franklin teaches is this, no matter how hard you try, Try very, very hard. You aren't able to live out the full realities of our text this morning. So in some ways, it's going to be discouraging for us. So we seek to say, okay, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Benjamin Franklin couldn't do it. We, it's difficult for us to do. Just absolutely perfect. But here's the good news. that Romans 12, 9 isn't some stepping stone to achieve something. It is rather a response to, to something great. And the response to something great is this, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, it's the mercies of God that Romans 12.9 are drawing us to love. And it's the mercies of God that, that cause us to hate evil. And it's the mercies of God that give us a desire to pursue good. It's in light of these mercies, right, that Romans chapters 1 through 11 is, is where we are. And if you don't understand Romans 12, 1 and the, the linchpin that that is and the hinge that that is about all the, the, the fact that we are sinners, but God saves us by his grace to the sanctification struggle, but we're secure in his sovereignty. If you don't understand Romans 12, 1, you won't understand verse 9. Because it's all in response is what, what our heart sings and what, what resonates with us and, and what it is that we want. Uh, and you won't understand verse 10 next week. And you won't understand verse 11 the next week. And 12 the next week. You'll just miss it if you miss Romans 12.1. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hammer that over and over. Because Rome, Romans 12 verse 9, our text today, is just a, a rightful response to the mercies of God. It's a, the rightful response to a God who has forgiven us of our sins through the grace that's in Jesus Christ. And what Benjamin Franklin was right about not obtaining moral perfection but he failed to see is that Jesus was the one who's perfect for us. Turn back to Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. You're right there. Turn back. It says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, right, the, the mercy of God is this, is that, is that God has come and done what we could never do, what the law could never do as it weak was by the flesh. Christ Jesus came in to do. He met the righteous requirement of law that we never could. As we trust in our faith in Him, we are made completely righteous in Him. There is no condemnation in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 3.24. It says we're justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Romans 1 through 11 speaks about how we are justified and vindicated by the Lord by faith. And we're not, Romans 12, 9, we're responding to that. We're not trying to do anything um, helping, right? We're, we're, we're not trying to earn anything by that. We're responding to our, our God whom we love. 
Right, so I want to look at our response in Romans 12.9 by just digging into these commands. Last week we looked at love, and this week we're going to look at evil and good. My message this morning is entitled, Dealing with Evil and Good. Like, how do you deal with them? I have two points this morning. We're spending a lot of time on the first point and not so much on the second point. Here's my first point, simply hate evil. Paul says in verse 9, abhor what is evil. That translation comes really from the, the Greek word for hate, but has this little uh, preposition in front of it which serves to amplify it. So you might, might want a literal translation of this would be really hate what is evil. And that comes out in various translations. The Christian Standard Bible says detest evil. The New International Version says hate what is evil. But the, the, the Greek text is abhor what's evil. It's like really hate the evil which is the ESV, which is the NIV, which is the New King James. Abhor what is evil. Listen, and when you hate something, you avoid it like the plague. Like my sons do this with school. Like, avoid it like the plague. Thankfully, SR's done. <laughs> Golf clap. <laughs> David's got a, a while to go. All right. So he'll... Get there, Lord willing. Now, some children, if you hate something, right, avoid it like the plague. Some children do this with broccoli. My, my, my favorite boy, Calvin, here. Right, or split pea soup. Or mushrooms or onions. Kids, kids, do you do this? Adults, do your kids do this? Absolutely, they do this. And some people do this with snakes or spiders or mice. They see a mouse, what do they do? They're up on a chair going, eek! I don't know why they say eek when they're scared of a mouse, but, but that's what they say. And that's what Paul's sort of response is calling us to do regarding evil. We ought to have a healthy fear of it. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We ought to have this fear of God, this hatred of evil, this fear of evil that we want to just run away from it. Now, this isn't the first time in the scriptures such a picture is used of fleeing away from things. Paul told the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians ten fourteen, My beloved, flee from idolatry. That is, is run away from it. That, that's when, when it comes near or you sense it, you want to go the other way. Like a cockroach that flees the light, we are to flee evil. When the evil comes, we need to flee it. We need to hate it. The Apostle John closed off his first epistle with a similar command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't don't even come close, but stay away. Keep yourself from the idols. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful passions. That is, run away from them. Get as far away as you can. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Keep it away from you. Abstain from it at all costs. Avoid it. That's the path of wisdom. Proverbs 22, verse 3 says, The prudent man sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Here it is. The wise man surveys life around him. The prudent man sees danger and and he hides himself. When he sees the danger... He heads the other way and he hides himself. But the foolish man does the opposite. He sees danger and he walks right towards it. He investigates it and he gets ensnared by it. Now, this is the Great America verse, right? I remember going to Great America and, um, you know, when, when I see a roller coaster, I just think, oh, man, there's headaches coming and it's going to hurt when I get rattled all around. And I remember being there and uh, another godly brother said, Proverbs 22, verse 3, Steve. 
The prudent man sees danger and he hides himself, but the foolish simply go on and they suffer for it. And so many a time I have been wise and saved myself a headache, but there have been times when I have gone on and my head gets banged around and I'm really bad. And so, so much so that when I go to Great America today, even the music on the outside starts giving me a headache. The prudent sees danger and hides himself. The simple go on and suffer for it. That's what Paul is telling us to do. Abhor what is evil. Just let it be, be distasteful. And uh, there's Calvin with his taste. He doesn't even like the, the broccoli or the green stuff, whatever he had. You can think about the same thing with your nostrils. Picture yourself driving down a country road with windows open on a, on a summer night. And then all of a sudden you... And when you smell... You smell the skunk, and you, and you get this, this cry from the back. The kids are like, oh, close the windows, not realizing you're just trapping the smell inside. But, um, you know, the same can be said of other smells, right? You're, you're driving by a, a pig farm, the same waft of, of that, or a, a garbage dump, um, or a, a moldy basement, Right? I heard some of the kids talk about a moldy basement. Is that right, Emily? Just, uh, yeah, just yuck. It just smells bad or, or rotting fruit or, or just it's... You ever been in a place where you just got to gotta go like this? Yeah, what's happening there, Zar? We're at Lassen Volcanic National Park and it's a, the hot sulfuric springs coming up. And SR just couldn't. Oh, he was so stenchful. He just, like rotten eggs is, is putrid smell. And when it comes to evil, that's the sort of attitude that we ought to have. We ought to be repulsed by it. And there are many evils in the world that we are to abhor. We are to abhor abortion. The taking of an innocent life in the womb. Now certainly there's got to be compassion for the women who find themselves in these difficult situations. But difficult situations don't justify the evils of killing an unborn baby. And I'm grateful to the Lord for the overwhelming response of Christendom to provide pregnancy care centers to care for women with free care for their unborn children. But we ought to abhor Abortion, And the more you find out about abortion, the more you'll see how abhorrent it is. And I can't believe just how hard people in our society are fighting for that. We should abhor evils of abuse of every sort, whether it's children or wives. Children who face the abuse of their parents or relatives hurt in far more ways than we ever know as I speak and interact with adults who face some difficult, abusive situations, whether it's verbally or physically or sexually growing up, it just has a, a deep and lasting impact in their lives. And we as Christians ought to rise up and speak out against such evils, which, praise the Lord, is happening in our society today. But we also need to have compassion for those who are hurt by the abuse. We ought to abhor addictions uh, of all kinds. You know, I'm just thinking particularly of drug addiction. It's the cause of so much violence in our land. The drug addict isn't able to fund his habit, so he steals to obtain any kind of funds he can. And those are just the A's, abortion and abuse and addiction. The list for evils of hate can go on and on. Abhorring the evils of taking lives in school shootings or rich landlords preying upon their poor tenants or authorities who abuse their power or racial discrimination which takes place in our nation. It still does. 
We have to abhor those types of evils. And this is the reality that we live in a sinful world where evil's all around us, where these things ought to form stenches in our nostrils and, and into our tastes, and we just hate it. But you know, here's the thing. I don't think Paul's talking about those sorts of things to hate. I don't think Romans 12.9 is a verse to rile us up to the point of all the sins of others in our society and condemn them for all the bad that they are. I think he's talking about us. Abhor evil that, that we do. And now, it's easily to misunderstand this in this way. I think about those in Corinth who misunderstood. Paul had written them this letter not, associ- not to associate with sexually immoral people. And they're like, okay, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And they pulled back from the world. And they only associated themselves with themselves. And, and they formed like this holy cluster, this holy, holy people. And the logic goes like this, right? We abhor evil. We hate it in every way. We run from it. And those in the world are immersed in evil. We hate their evil in every single way. And so we run from it. And we run from them. And Paul had to clarify himself. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have we to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, it's not the evil people of the world that we need to be like, oh, let's stay away from them, let's stay away from them, let's stay away from them. It's evil professors professing to be Christians and living evilly. You need to push yourself away from them. But those in the world who need Christ, their sin, obviously, that you must avoid. But Paul is not saying to to go against them. Jesus called us to go into the world, right? Mark sixteen fifteen, Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's the context of the book of Romans. Romans is, is a missionary letter where he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. He's writing to the Romans in hopes that they will support him in his missionary efforts to Spain to preach Christ where Christ has never been named before. And there's much evil where Christ has never been named before. And bringing the gospel to those people means rubbing against sinful people in the world like Jesus did. He was called a friend of sinners. He let prostitutes touch him. He dined with tax collectors. And as he did this, he didn't engage in their sin. Nor did he approve of them, their sin. He, he was sinless. And I think you can even argue that he was sinless because he hated evil far more than any of us ever will. But that didn't prohibit him from going out and and reaching out in love. And and being with sinful people doesn't mean you approve of everything they do. Ivana, I've been reading this very convicting book by Rosaria Butterfield about hospitality, which will come out when we get to verse 13. But just the love and compassion that she shares and opens up her home to those who are on the outside without Christ is amazing. How, how, How she can ride this line in terms of being an influence in people's lives but not being influenced but saying that where are they going to go? They have hurt. And let's minister to their hurt. Let's help them. She has people in her home, I think, almost every night of the week from her neighborhood, just right around her. It's, 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 it's been amazing. And I just encourage you, right, to, to think as we think about hating evil, you, you, you can hate evil, but you need to bring the gospel to people where there's hope. 
this, this fall, I'm going to be involved in a pool league, going to be where people are who need Jesus. Probably the only light that they have in that pool hall. So I play on Monday nights, a couple, couple weeks a month. So I'm going there. Jesus prayed for his disciples. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. I mean, that, that's the whole idea of Paul. We are in the world, but we need to stay away from the evil one. It's not the sinful people of the world we must avoid. It's sin in our lives that we need to avoid. When Paul says abhor what is evil, he's talking about the evil in our lives. He's talking about personal holiness. He's talking about walking in purity before the Lord that's sensitive to sin on all levels. In your mind and in your heart and in your body. And he's telling us to abhor evil that's in ourselves. And, and, and the more you know yourself, the more you realize that there is more to abhor. I turn back to chapter 7. Look at this is a great illustration about just even the, the wickedness and the evil I think that Paul is talking about we need to abhor. Chapter 7, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Uh, what this means is that just he, he is just right there, wants to do right, he was close at hand. You can't exclude enough of the world to keep yourself pure because you're always with yourself. And the evil is right at hand. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members a different law. Let's see. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched men that I am, he says. He's got this sinful law in his, in his members. It's working and it's struggling. And he saw himself deep in what it was. And consider that this comes from the Apostle Paul, a righteous and zealous man who knew the Scriptures and who heard from God. And he had every desire to live and walk rightly before the Lord. Verse 22, In my inner self I delight in God's law, but he saw his bondage to sin and counted himself to be a wretched man that is a, a sinful and evil man that did the very things he hated. See, he hated evil, but he found himself doing evil. Verse 14 and 15. He says, We know the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh, sold under sin. I, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's that word hate, abhor. It's the same idea, same circle of meanings. And that's really what Paul is getting at when he says, abhor what is evil. Even, even the evil that you do, that you're prone to do, you just hate it. See, it's not the evil out there in the society we must hate. Yeah, yeah, we must hate that, right? We must do what we can to do that. But it's the evil in our own flesh that verse 9 is talking about. That we need to come and, and hate it. But we need to do so, again, with perspective. This is context. Uh, immediately after, Paul says, wretched man that I am, verse 24, how does he say? He asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he provides the answer, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The implication is that Jesus is delivering him from his flesh. And, and Paul's understanding of his own sin is that it's so repulsed that he's, he's, dry, he's driven into this morbid Right? This, this introspection, but it doesn't end there. His, his morbid introspection leads him then to Jesus. It leads him to praise and thanks, thanks the Lord for his Savior. The one through whom we escape condemnation, Romans 8.1. The one who gave himself for us all, Romans 8.32. The one who took God's wrath upon himself for us, Romans 3.25. The one who loves us in our sinful, sinful state, Romans 5.8. 
and again, I remind you, right, Romans 12, 9, hating evil is response. I mean, what is it that gave Paul this desire and delight to hate evil? It's the very fact that God's word dwelt in him and that he loved God's word and he loved God's law and he approved of it and he wanted to walk that way, but it was difficult. He did the things he hated and Paul's stirring us to have this holy fight within us and and we hate evil in us, but we know of God's mercy toward us. And apart from God's mercy, we'd be in despair. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, Ben Franklin? Nobody. But Jesus will, if you know Jesus. And see, with God's mercy, it's all changed. Yes, we see our sin. Yes, we hate our sin. But we also see His mercy and grace, and that gives us strength to carry on our lives then with joy. And so we aren't following the counsel of Romans 12.9 for approval before the Lord. We're following Romans 12.9 because our hearts want to be followers of Jesus Christ. And this abhorrence where it says, abhor what is evil, that extends to every sin. Even the, the littlest evil in your life ought to be hated and despised. Many times we think it's only the big sins. Oh, we can hate the big sins. We can speak loudly against the big sins. But these little sins, we can have them. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Right? That is, the, 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 the church has got these big ones. Yeah, no, you can't do those. But then has a lot of respectable sins that you can do. Jesus debunked that. It's not just the big sins we need to hate. We need to hate every sin. The Sermon on the Mount, he brought it down to the heart. If you look at a woman with lustful intent, you're guilty of adultery. If you're angry with your brother, you're, you're guilty of murder. It's every evil that we need to hate. I don't want to embarrass him, but I want to encourage the Browns. Um, we were at the, uh, the last party yesterday, and you had to try to guess how many M&Ms were in this big, big barrel of M&Ms. And, and um, every, a lot of people guessed, and I got it right. I didn't get it right. I missed, uh, Amy said, by 300. Adam, maybe you know, I'm not sure if you were there counting. I don't know how you counted them all, but uh, my guess, as I remember, was in the... 8,000 range, 7,000 range, 7,000, I was in the 7,000, whatever, missed by 100. So anyway, Amy comes with this big, (laughs) what, 7,000 M&Ms. It's not good for me, Adam. And uh, so my kids didn't know that. And so uh, David was longing that one of us would win. He guessed 300 and he didn't win, okay? But... (laughs) But he was longing that we would win, and so I took some of these, and I kind of brought them proudly here, and I was just going to say, hey, look, I got a bunch more of these, Yvonne, and Yvonne had a chance. We won? We won? Did I win? I said, no, I, I won. I won. Um, but David had some, and then I was going to give some to the kids, and I gave some to David, and Thatcher was there. I said, Thatcher, would you want one? And he, he, he took one, and then he put it back. He said, no, 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 my parents wouldn't want me to do that. How sweet that was. Now, I don't, I don't know whether it's an allergy thing or whether it's just, I just need to. But it's sensitive to an M&M. And what, what a perspective of all of us that we would be sensitive to M&Ms before the Lord. Listen to Proverbs 11, verse 1. It says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. 
the proverb here is talking about the marketplace. It's, it's talking about where goods and services are being sold. And picture a man in his shop and he's selling rice. He's got a bunch of rice behind him. And, and along comes a woman right, preparing for her, her meal that night. And um, she comes up and uh, she wants a pound of rice. And so since he sells it by the pound, 70 cents a pound, she comes seeking some rice. And so he pulls out his false balance, which weighs 15 and three quarters ounces and puts it there on the scale and then puts a pound of rice on the other. And she sells, he sells her this pound of rice for 70 cents. But because of the false balance, it was only 69 cents worth of, uh, of rice. That's called a, a false balance, cheating her out of a penny. And you know what the Lord calls that? Let me read Proverbs 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. How how small is that division between an abomination before the Lord and God's delight in the Lord? A quarter of an ounce. An M&M turns something from an abomination to a delight. Is it really worth a penny? Is it really worth an M&M? When you think about God's, God's perspective. You know, it says, Proverbs 15, verse 3, that God looks upon both the evil and the good. And He knows that, that dividing line. And a quarter of an ounce is an abomination for the Lord. You know what, you know what abomination means? I looked it up. Webster said this, something regarded with disgust or hatred. What does it bring us back to? Romans 12, 9. Hatred, disgust. We need to hate what is evil. We need to be disgusted by it, so we need to run from it. You know, a great illustration of this comes from the life of Joseph, told in Genesis chapter 39. Through God's sovereign working in his life, he found himself to be in charge of Potiphar's household, responsible for everything in his house. So that uh, uh, Potiphar would even say there's nothing that concerns him. And now there came a day when Potiphar's wife made some advances toward Joseph and said, lie with me. And Joseph refused. And I read Genesis 39 verse 8. He said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything he has in my charge. He's not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything Except for you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Really, that's a great question. How then can I do this great witness and wickedness and sin against God? It's the question we ought all to ask when it comes about the evil around us. How can I do this wickedness? Abhor what is evil. But that wasn't. Like, like all temptation, it doesn't like just go away there. She kept at it. Genesis 39, 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day after day, but he would not listen to her to lie beside her, be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house were there, she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got outside the house. Now, if you know the story, you know that didn't go well for Joseph after this. He was falsely accused and sent to prison for his crimes. 
But while society may have looked down upon him, might have accused him falsely, God shined upon him with the light of how he hated and abhorred what is evil. And his example is good for us, that when evil came, and when it came close, he ran away. And that's what we ought to do with our lives in response to the mercy of God. That's why Eugene Peterson translated this verse, run for dear life from evil. Church family, I just say, may the Lord strengthen us to do so. May he give us crystal clarity on what is evil and what is good. And may he give us the courage to, to abhor it and to change our behavior but, but think about this now. This is only half the message. We flee this evil. As we abhor this evil, there's got to be something else we do. And, and what do we do then? We flee the evil and then we pursue the Lord or we pursue good or we, we flee to the good. That's why Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation right, says this. Run for dear life from evil and hold on for dear life to what is good. It's my second point. Hate evil, hold on to what is good. Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is glue. This word hold fast is the word for glue. It's the the sticky word. Uh, It means that our lives should be glued or cemented to good. We walk around. People should just see or sense that good is with us. Because we are cemented, that we are holding it fast. It's the word Jesus used in describing marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two should become one flesh. Holding fast, clinging, gluing. It's a word used to describe dust clinging to your garments. Shake off the dust that's clinging and that's glued to your garments. It's the word you describe the unity of the early church. They were just joined together. They were glued together. And when it comes to good, this is, this is how it should be with us. We should be joined like a husband and a wife are joined. We, we should be like dust on a garment. Like it, it's just all around us. It's on us. We should be like friends who stick closer than brothers. And we flee from evil. We need to flee to the good. Earlier I read for you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, where Paul said to, to flee from sin. He didn't just leave, just flee from sin. No, he said what to go after. He said follow after the good. He said this, 2 Timothy 2, 22. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2. Flee youthful passions. And here it is. Pursue righteousness. Faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And you can easily umbrella all these things. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace under this umbrella good. Flee from those things. Follow after. Hold on to the things that are good. Pursue the things that are good. Pursue the things which are are blessings to others. Now, in thinking about how you exposit this, I'm thinking in the scriptures like, it could be almost infinite ways in which to do this because the scripture is always pointing us to the good things. Um, Psalm 92 verse 1, it is a good thing to give thanks and praise unto the Lord. Um, it's good to come into the assembly. It's good to, to, to walk in unity. It, it's so many things that are just going to tell everything that it speaks about. Obe- obeying the Lord or walking, they're all under this umbrella good. But but before I really get into some application, I want to think about making a parallel point. Remember when I said hate evil, and there's all those evil things out there in the world that we know oh, we need to hate those, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about us. I say similar. There's a lot of good things out there that, that we can rejoice in, that, that we can hold on to in, in some regard. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about what's in here. So but let me give you an instance of how easy it is to look, look out there. 
And let me just tell you a story. I went with John Underhill. I went into the jail uh, one day. You, you invited people into the jail like Sunday after your weekend. It was a great time. I loved the time. It was fantastic. And uh, while I was being checked in by the deputy and kind of standing there, I was sitting around some pastors. And um, particularly there was a pastor of a big church in town. And kind of the question came up, oh, are, are you involved in jail ministry? Here was his response. Oh, yeah, we're involved. In fact, we come here like twice a week. And uh, like every Sunday we come. I'm thinking like twice a week. Like, oh, my goodness. Like, I got enough stuff going on. How? And you got a lot of stuff going on. I mean, you're the pastor of this big church. How can you come here twice a week? You, newsflash, he wasn't going there twice a week. People from his church were going there twice a week, but he just lumped himself in the we, almost the appearance that it was I. I remember talking to another guy in part of a bigger church here in town, and he talked about all the missions which we're involved in. Oh, you know, we're, we're doing this in this country, and we're doing this in this country, we're doing this, and we got all these summer opportunities. I'm like, I struggle to go, like, whatever, once a year is a lot, and you're going a lot, and then I just gone to me. When he says we, he doesn't mean me. He means all the good that they are doing. And I just say there's lots of people <clears throat> who love going to big churches because of all the good that's doing. Just as there are lots of Christians who, who love pointing out all the evil out there but won't touch themselves. There are lots of Christians who love going to a big church and look all the good that they're doing, though they themselves, you know what they're doing? Nothing. And what Paul is talking about here is talking about clinging to good. He's talking about your own good. He's talking about your own righteousness. He's talking about your own love and your own extension about how it is that you are loving others and serving others and doing good with others. He's talking about your own righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's easy to just say, oh yeah, all those things are good. <clears throat> but what about your good? Are you holding fast to good? And so you say, well... How can I do that? And I, I think, you know, just, a, just a, a few verses here would be helpful. And I go back to Benjamin Franklin. When he, uh, when he went to uh, that church, the pastor preached this passage. And Franklin was disappointed. Finally, my brothers, Philippians 4 verse 8, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So in other words, here's the key. Right? You, wanna, you want to hold fast to, to the good? You want to hold on to the good? Well, think about the good. Whatever's true, right? Think about the true things. Whatever is honorable, think about the honorable things. Whatever is lovely, think about the lovely things. Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of prayer, you just dwell on those things and you think about those things and then as those things work themselves out in your life, it will work itself out in a, in a good and profitable and helpful way. And I, I just encourage you, if you want to hold on to what is good, think on those things and commend those things as well. Speak highly of those things. You know, again, I just, I, I just love pointing out evidence of grace like I did in Thatcher. I just want to do that, Chuck, for you, Chuck Dean. Rachel was here last week. I was so encouraged by Rachel. Just, just come back from Moody Bible Institute. She said, yeah, her perspective, I'm going to misquote her a little bit. But she said, yeah, I thought it was going to be good. But it's way better than I thought. We're learning all these Bible, all this Bible stuff. And we just get to do this. And she's involved in some ministry. And I like, tried to commend her. I've commended her to others. 
I commend her to you, Chuck, and maybe I don't see Elise here today, but, but just commend what is good. Whether you see evidence of grace like you do in Thatcher, you see evidence of grace in other places, commend that because what you commend will continue to go, will continue to progress, and that's in others. You want to hold on to that. It rubs off on yourself. But it's all about your mind. It's all about thinking. And I come back to Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. Right? That's, that's the same message here. Abhor the evil. But hold fast to what is good. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to see what's good? Well, saturate your mind with God's word and then you can see what's good and follow after the Lord in those ways. You know, the Lord looks down upon the evil and the good. And I just pray that when he looks upon us, he doesn't see an abomination, but he sees us walking in righteousness before the Lord. And that comes, right, before Christ. We are, are clean and pure before him, but these are our heart's desire to live in these ways. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray that you would sink these things deep into our heart, that we would indeed... Um, abhor evil out there and in here and in ourselves. <clears throat> Help us, oh God, to be sensitive to sin. I just look at this message. I have a long way to go. God, thinking about the, the quarter of an ounce, God, that needs to be shed. Father, would pray that you might help us in these ways. God, would pray that you would teach us how to hold fast to the good. There's so much in the Bible that exhorts us in those ways. And I pray that that would be true of us at at Rock Valley Bible Church, that we would be those who are glued to good, those who hold fast to it. God, and we do these things, again, not not to merit anything before you, but really to, to please you and to walk in righteous ways and to be rewarded by the blessings that you give to those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84 Verse 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And Father, as we walk uprightly, there's blessing there. There is uh, health. There is vitality. There is joy. And so, God, I pray that you would help us in these things so as to walk rightly before you. God, I thank you for this church family that does that so well. And would pray you just help us to excel still more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.